All right, we are uh, in the Gospel Story Sermon Series, ready to pick that back up today. I'm excited to do that with you today. If you're just joining us and haven't been here, give you, I'll give you a few, um, uh, just a few reminders of where we are. So um, what we're doing is we're looking at this compilation of books that we call the Bible. We're looking at this together, um, over 60, 66 books, over 40 authors, written on three different continents, spanning over two millennia, right? So we're looking at this amazing com- compilation of writings that are actually telling one redemption story. The first week we looked at the book of Genesis and compared it to the book of Revelation and how are these, there's these unmistakable parallels between the, the beginning and the end of the book, which tells us that there's an author to the story and he's telling one story. And so we've began walking through the Bible that way. Week one, we looked at God's creation, how it was good. He created men and women to be image bearers, to be worshipers, and to be fruitful and multiply, to build for him a kingdom of image bearers who dwell and abide in rich community. Then the next week, we came back and we looked at the fall and how through sin, everything got distorted. Man was no longer living for the glory of God. He was living for the glory of himself or herself, and everything gets distorted. Be fruitful and multiply uh, what became, yeah, be fruitful, and here's what you're going to multiply, the sin problem. You're going to pass on that sin nature from generation to generation to generation until it lands on us. Even here today, we've inherited that sin nature. And then Genesis chapter 12, through the rest of your Old Testament, God is making and reiterating this promise. Guys, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue the nations, and I'm going to do it through a very specific genealogy, a very specific bloodline. And he says this, I'm going to rescue the nations through the descendants of Abraham. So as we walk through the Old Testament, we're following the story of the nation of Israel. Those are the descendants of Abraham. We're essentially following the promise forward. About halfway there, we run into this cat named David. And at first, he looks like he's going to be this fabulous leader, a king that we can finally get behind to to rally God's kingdom together, to build God a temple and lead his people in righteousness. And, And everything starts off great. And then what happens? And David sees Bathsheba, commits adultery, gets her pregnant, murders her husband to cover the whole thing up, and, right, and all of a sudden our hope is diminished again. But God speaks into that moment and says, wait, 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 I'm not done yet. Through David's descendants, I'm going to send a rescuer, a king, to sit on my throne forever. And so the bloodline of Abraham continues through David, leading us to the New Testament. Then the end of your Old Testament ends with what seems like 400 years of silence as God doesn't speak through human authors for over 400 years, leaving the people of God wondering, did God forget? Did he change his mind? Did we, did we rebel so much that we've kind of, out, you know, kind of outlasted our patience with God and he's turned his back on us? What happened? And that's how your Old Testament ends, with this lingering promise. I wonder if God's actually going to do that. Is he going to really rescue the nations? So it's no mistake when we open our Bible to the New Testament, the very first verse we read captures all of that. We're going to open our Bibles to the book of Matthew today. We're going to look at the rescue. Now, today and next Sunday, we're going to look at the rescue. So today is the rescue part A or part one. Next week will be part two. Now, when we get to that place in the story where we're at the rescue, we're in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John. It's, it's the telling of the story of the rescuer coming to rescue us. So look at the very first verse in your New Testament. After 400 years of God not speaking through human authors, the very first verse says this. The book, or this is the book, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, without that backdrop of the redemption story, that verse doesn't land on us very hard, does it? It's just a description of Jesus and who he's related to. But when we understand, though, that this huge promise that radiates through the Old Testament is hinging on a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham to come rescue us, now this verse has our attention. Could this be the one? Now, Matthew introduces Jesus to us by calling him the Christ. Now, that's the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. And so what Matthew is saying to us, he's making this announcement to the world, guys, the rescuer is here. He's come in the the lineage of David and the, the lineage of Abraham. He is qualified to fulfill the ancient prophecies and promises that God has made to us. Now from here, what Matthew does is he walks through the genealogy. And shows us how Jesus, through uh, his parents' lineage, is related to David and related to Abraham. So, from a genealogical standpoint, he's qualified. However, we still have an issue. If the rescuer comes to us, right, through through the the same way that that other people come to us, through be fruitful and multiply, we've got a problem. Because there isn't a man and a woman on earth who exist who can come together, be fruitful and multiply, and bring into this world a being that's not a sinner, right? So be fruitful and multiply won't work here, so God has to do it a different way, which is why right after the genealogy, Matthew shifts to what we call the immaculate conception. Now, this is a really important part of the gospel to understand how Jesus has come to us and why Jesus had to come to us this way. So in verse 20, we'll pick this back up. Now here's what's happening. Joseph is engaged to Mary. And in this culture and time, that's binding. There's no more, hey, you got to out if this thing doesn't work out. Okay, it's done. You're as good as married. You just haven't had the ceremony yet. Okay, so Joseph discovers that Mary, his fiance, is pregnant. And so in his mind, he knows that if the people in his culture find that out, they're going to shame her. Unfaithful woman, harlot, scandal, right? Adulterer, prostitute, and and essentially, right, she's going to be subject to penalty of death. Joseph, being a good man, said, man, I don't want that for Mary. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to back out quietly. I'm just going to divorce her quietly. I'm going to move on down the road. Right? We're just going to pretend nothing happened. And so an angel comes to Joseph in his dream. Listen to this in verse 20. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now this is important. What the angel is saying to 
Joseph is this. There's something miraculous happening in the womb of Mary. Don't back out on this. The Holy Spirit of God has inaugurated this conception. Look at what he says next. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Hey, let's not skip past that. Because in the big picture of the Bible, that little word Emmanuel, which means? Is telling us that the author of the story, in this moment, he's stepping into the story. That's huge, right? So God's not just leading from a distance. He's not orchestrating and guiding the path of human history from afar. He's stepping into the story. This is huge. So this rescuer is not like any other man who's ever walked on earth. Right? We have to hope he gets it right. Hope he doesn't fall like King David did. We put our hope in him. God's saying, no, I'm going to come to you. This is going to happen a different way. My Holy Spirit is going to inaugurate this conception. And I'm going to step into the story. Now, what Jesus does here on earth is incredibly important to the story. So today what we're going to look at is, is his life essentially leading up to the cross before he ever gets there. In Matthew chapter 5, just a few more chapters forward in your Bible, at the onset of Jesus' public ministry, he says some really important things to us that I think most of us gloss over or skip over because we don't understand what it means. Let me just read a few words. This is Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 17. So Jesus tells us, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until when? It is all accomplished. Now, stop right here. So what Jesus is saying to us is this. I have not come to water down, diminish, alter the law. That's not what I've come to do. I have not come to change God's standard of what righteousness is. Instead, though, I've come to do what? His life mission, to fulfill it. Now, that's an interesting way to think about the law, isn't it? We tend to think about the law in terms of obeying it, not fulfilling it, right? And so for a lot of us, law is somewhat arbitrary. We got speed limits. We got this law and that law. And they're basically to kind of keep us in the boundaries. They're to be obeyed, to keep civilization moving forward. But that's not how Jesus talks about the law, is it? He didn't say, I simply came to obey the law and show you jokers how to do this. He's saying what? I've come to fulfill the law, which tells us from the beginning that the law was given to us to be fulfilled, not just obeyed. So as Jesus comes to earth and steps into the story and he obeys, 
He's actually fulfilling something. He's bringing the law to completion here. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Now, what he says next, though, is incredibly important. Therefore, whoever relaxes, waters down, or diminishes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I have not come to water down the law. You better not water down the law. And what does he say next? But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, now now listen to this. This is going to land hard on us today. Unless your righteousness, okay, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Because the scribes and the Pharisees, these were the highly moral religious leaders of the day and time. They were considered to be the standard. Your lifelong goal, if you were a highly moral person and God was going to be impressed with your morality, was to become like a scribe or Pharisee. And what Jesus is saying, hey, that's not going to work. Actually, we're not going to diminish the requirements of the law. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you have any hope at all of getting into the kingdom of heaven. Now I've got a problem. You have a problem too. I don't know if you're ready to admit it yet. We have a problem. Who's going to get into the kingdom of heaven? I mean, if Jesus just comes to earth perfectly obeys God, dies and goes back to heaven, but doesn't do anything to fix my brokenness and my unrighteousness, I didn't get rescued, and neither did you. Now, this is such an important part of the story because here's what we try to do. When we feel inadequate, when we feel unloved, we feel like I'm never gonna measure up, right? What we wanna do is we wanna bring the standard down to our level, right? We wanna diminish the standard so that we can achieve it. And Jesus said, hey, we're not lowering standard. Standard actually is higher than what you think it is. And unless you achieve that standard, you don't get into heaven. Busted. Now, that leaves us with some lingering questions. Is it too late for me? I mean, I'm 41. I'll be 42 this summer. Is it too late to get righteous? How do I get righteous? I spent the 40, last 42 years pretty sure ingraining the fact that I'm not righteous. So if I get another 42 years, can I undo all that? How do I get, because I want to get into heaven. I don't know if that's why you're here today, but I want to get into heaven. So how do I get there? If the only way I can get there is to be perfectly righteous. Well, the book of Romans is incredibly helpful. Matter of fact, chapter 5 in the book of Romans, where we're going to go next, there's a beautiful overview of this redemption story we're talking about. The Apostle Paul really covers from beginning to end this redemption story. We're just going to look at a couple of verses, though. So we don't have time to read it all day, but I I encourage you to make this part of maybe your your daily Bible reading this week. Come back and read chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12 and just look at a couple of verses. 
Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through what? Who was that man? Adam. Okay, so you feel the redemption story there? Sin comes into the world through Adam. And death through sin. What did God tell Adam? If you sin, you will die. And so death spread to all men because all sin. There's our problem, isn't it? We kept having little people, and those little people inherited our sin nature and kept sinning. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's us. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many were made what? Whoa, now I'm feeling better about things. But I still have a problem. How do I get that? You you tracking with me? I got a little hope now because the Bible's telling me that somehow Jesus is fixing this thing. He's fixing what's broken within me. And so somehow Jesus can make me righteous. So how do I I get that? Because if I can't get that, I don't get into heaven. I'm going to look at Romans chapter 3 together. This is where we're going to land today, Romans chapter 3. I'm just going to look at three or four verses here in Romans 3. We're going to look at this amazing connection to what Jesus did in his life and our lives here today. For the person who's here today, when we read Matthew 5, went, well, there's no way I'm getting into heaven. I'm so far from righteous, it's not even funny. I don't even have a chance of being as righteous as a Pharisee or a religious leader, much less exceeding that. I'm done. Or maybe you're the person who's, who's here today who's looking for hope, and you're like, hey, I know there's some way to get into heaven. I just don't know how to do it. I'm, I need somebody to help me. Tell me, what do I need to do? Well, Romans chapter 3 is going to walk us through this. We're going to start in verse 21. Now, listen, I want to read this slowly because I want every word to land on us today. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, stop, that's so important. That's the plot twist we've been needing, right? But now, because so far, I don't have any hope. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That word means made known. Apart from... The law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, here's what that verse means. The the righteousness of God has come to us by another means, apart from the law. The only way to get the righteousness of God through the law is to perfectly do what? Obey it. That leaves us without hope, right? None of us gets into heaven that way. And so what Paul is saying is like, let me tell you the good news. Now. The righteousness of God has come to us apart from the law, a new way, another way, a different way. So now I'm on the edge of my seat. What way are you talking about? Now, before we read any further, here's what we typically do at this point in the gospel. The righteousness of God comes to us another way. 
That's right. It does come to us another way. And then what we do is we end up creating our own new law. I'm going to get it. Um, Church attendance, right? Check, Check me off. I'm here every Sunday. I'm on time. If I'm late, it's my wife's fault. Check my church attendance, pastor. Go a step further. Look at my all-in commitment. I know nobody knows what everybody committed, but just ask the elders. They'll vouch for me. I'm in, right? Community group attendance. I mean, if, if, if it's not in there, it's on my community group leader. He didn't put me in there. I'm in there. I was there. Not only was I there, I participated in every question that was asked. I never let awkward silence go more than two seconds. I never said too much nor too little. I never was a burden to anybody in the community group, and every time I spoke, it helped somebody. Right? And we end up creating our own law over here. Check, done it. Check, done it. Check, done it. I'm reading through the Bible in a year, and I'm not behind. And what do we end up doing? We end up creating our own Pharisee standard, don't we? And Jesus says what? It's got to be better than that. That'll never get you in. So we need a different way to get righteousness. And this is the hope of Romans 3. When he says that the the righteousness of God is made known to us apart from the law, he's talking about, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. A righteousness that comes through faith in what? Say it again. A righteousness that comes through in? That's the gospel. That is the gospel story of the Bible. This is the heartbeat of your Bible right here. This is huge. This is what changes eternity for me. This is what changes Jason Williams' life headed to an eternity in hell. The best shot I have at heaven is what I can make this world to be. I've got no hope in the next life. To you know what? I'm saved. And I will spend eternity with Christ. How did I go from not righteous to righteous? By faith in Christ alone. And what else? Nothing else. Hear me on this, church. Nothing else. So what happens then when I trust in Christ? How does this work? Let's, let's, let's talk for a minute real honestly, okay? For there is no distinction. That phrase was not just thrown in there so that we would have some poetic phrasing. Like Paul was thinking something here, and he knows our propensity is to create what? Distinction. It happens in a lot of different ways. We do it with the color of our skin. We do it with socioeconomics. You know another way we do it? By the level of the severity of your sin. Oh, wait a second. I thought that sin was all equal. Yeah, we say that in church, but that's not how we live. Just just a little litmus test. Don't raise your hand. How many of you shared the gospel with a prostitute this week? How many of you shared the gospel with a drug dealer, a homeless person? Oh, what are you saying? Those are the really bad people? No, I'm saying there's no distinction. So why do we make the distinction? Right? And what Paul is saying is like, you've got to understand this. Like, look at what he says next. For all have what? 
and fall short of the glory of God. We are all wrecked image bearers. The Pharisee and the prostitute and everybody in between. There is none righteous, not even one, is what the Bible says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a what? Gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. What does that mean that it's a gift? Here's what happens when you trust in Jesus. Hear me on this. This is, this is the gospel playing out in your life. When you trust in Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven and he, he gives to you his righteousness as a gift. He doesn't just make you good, he makes you righteous. Not just sub-righteous, righteous. righteous. The equivalent amount that Jesus is righteous, you're righteous. Mind blown, right? Let that land on you. Mind blown. Here's what that means for you. Listen to me, church. Do you remember what God said about Jesus when he was baptized? When when God is witnessing the baptism of Jesus, he speaks from heaven with a voice that's audible and says, that's my boy, in him I am well pleased. If you haven't inherited the righteousness of Christ through faith, guess what God says about you right now in this moment, in the seat that you're sitting in. That's my boy, that's my girl, in whom I am well pleased. That's you, to the equivalent that God is pleased with Jesus. So when we walk with this idea, God's not pleased with me, he's disappointed in me, then you have to ask yourself, is he disappointed in Jesus? Because you got his righteousness, not yours. This changes everything, doesn't it? Now I'm no longer trying to earn my way into heaven. Now I'm no longer reading verses like Matthew 5, where Jesus said, listen, you ain't getting into heaven unless you're perfect. I go, I know. <laughs> I'm so thankful that Jesus has made me perfect. Right? Doesn't that change everything? I'm no longer trying to make God proud of me. You can't make God proud of you. If that cuts against the grain of what you thought was true, we've got a heresy flag going up. You can't make God proud of you. You certainly can't make him as proud of you as he is of Jesus. And through faith in Christ, that's how proud he is of you. You see how that works? I'm no longer trying not to embarrass God in public. You know that feeling you get as parents when you're at the grocery store and your kids are just flipping out? You're like, man, I can't spank you here. They'll throw me in jail. You know that feeling? Come on, you know that feeling. And we feel that way too, don't we? Like, God, I just don't want to embarrass him in public. Won't make him mad at me. This also means I'm no longer defined by shame or guilt. It's not who I am. Let's go ahead and land here today. It's part one of the rescue, okay? We're gonna come back next week and we're gonna look at part two. Through Jesus' sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, how he has rescued every person in this room, including everybody who's gonna show up and join us at Easter. But let's land here today. I've got two pleas with you, okay? If you're here today 
and you've not come to that place in your journey where you have trusted in Jesus, listen, I'm going to plead with you today. I'm going to beg you to think about courageously taking a step of faith towards Jesus and trusting in him and him alone. I want you to hear me on this. I'm pleading with you. You would make that decision today. Everything else in life hinges on this singular one decision. If you're here today and and you are a Christian, but you walked into this room feeling inadequate, less than, beat down, burden, like God was disappointed with you, listen, we needed to hear this again today, didn't we? I did. You're my boy. You're my girl in whom I am well pleased. Now, does that mean that there's no room in our lives to pursue holiness? Not at all. Pursue holiness. Pursue a life like Jesus, but do that because you're already accepted. Not trying to get accepted. That's the difference, right? As I pursue holiness in my life, what I'm saying is, I'm his. He's pleased with me. That excites me. Now I'm free to live like Christ. When I get it wrong, grace will catch me. When I get it right, he gets the glory. But I'm no longer doing these things to try to make God happy with me. Listen, Christ's followers, why Jesus says, come to me. My burden's easy. Why? Because I already carried it for you. Burden on the law, my shoulders, fulfilled, done. You can have it by faith in me. Let's land here today. I'm gonna invite our prayer partners up. I don't know what God's doing in this room in this moment, but I've been through two of these services already today, and God's been moving and breaking hearts big time today. Listen, if that's you, and you want to talk with somebody or pray with somebody, that's, that's what our prayer partners are for. Um, so please come grab one. If you're here today and you want more information about becoming a Christian, would you be so courageous as to step out of your chair while we're singing, grab a prayer partner, just let them talk with you and pray with you about becoming a Christian today? If you want to stand and sing, we're going to sing this beautiful gospel song um, that says, Lord, I need you. Every day I need you. Not way back when I got saved when I was eight and walked out at church, but every day I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, Lord, how I need you. If you want to stand and sing that with us, we'll sing that too. So worship team, if you guys will come forward. Prayer partners, if you'll go ahead and make your way to the room, let's pray and we'll respond. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you. God, your goodness to us is beyond what we can comprehend. God, we know that your standard for getting into heaven is like perfect. God, it blows our minds to think that you've done something that could actually make us perfect, guilt-free, shameless, and full of hope. God, thank you for the reminder today that everything that you require has been fulfilled through Jesus. Help us to embrace that and to walk in that truth by faith. We pray your Holy Spirit would move through this room and move through our hearts stir in us, awaken in us, for the person who's sitting here right now, resistant, wrestling with doubts, wrestling with fears, God, would you 
you be near to that person right now? Would you give faith to believe right now? God, we give you this time. Guide us as we respond in Christ's name.